polycystic ovarian syndrome across all stages of life. That is today's show on the Low Tox Life podcast. Welcome to the Low Tox Life Podcast. I'm Alex Stewart, your host, and today is show 355. I have the wonderful Dr. Leia Hechtman with me today, and she is someone whose work I have followed for many years, and as someone with PCOS, I am struggling to understand why I haven't done a show on PCOS specifically for the eight years this podcast has been going, but here we are doing one today and it is an absolute cracker. You could not fit more information about PCOS into an hour that was both helpful, insightful and useful if you tried. Uh, So I'm very much looking forward to bringing you this. If you're not familiar with Dr. Leah Hechtman, she has uh, a PhD. She's a renowned naturopathic clinician specialized in fertility, pregnancy, and comprehensive reproductive health. She gets referrals from all around the world uh, when it comes to uh, fertility uh, specialization required both from IVF clinics and uh, conventional physicians. And she's very big on collaborative approaches to health, uh, has a um, keen interest in how we can champion the bridging of those gaps between different disciplines and theories and really fostering uh, a collaborative approach, uh, both in practice and research that I just respect so much. Uh, obviously she is a revered university lecturer, sought after keynote speaker on a number of, uh, women's health topics, uh, and a regular voice in the media. So I will be bringing you that PCOS chat in just a little minute, but of course, We cannot do this wonderful weekly show without our sponsors bringing you your easier way to make your low-tox swaps and stock-ups on your favorite brands. And those two this month are, just for the Aussies, I'm afraid, but the first one is Walida. Now, Walida is somewhat of an OG in the low-tox space, and Skin Food is a product that many listeners out there love and I often hear of all the creative ways that it's used. I know I've used it for everything from uh, dry heels and elbows in winter through to uh, underneath makeup, especially if I'm doing something on video or TV, find it gives you that really wonderful glow. I love it as a flight cream. Other options are endless as a recovery cream if you've been in the sun to really, really moisturize deeply. Uh, But they now have extended the range even further. So you might have heard of the body butter, the the lighter skin food lotion. You now have skin food, the face range, and it is beautiful. There's a day cream, a night cream, and you also have a beautiful cleansing balm. Very, very nourishing range. I would say normal combination dry would be the spectrum that would enjoy it the most. Beautiful for uh, mature skin. I'm nearly 48 as I record this and it's suiting me perfectly 
as we navigate a very weird, cold one day, hot the next day, uh, super dry one day, super windy, then like sweltering hot and humid uh, spring here in Sydney. It's beautiful. So you have 20% off the entire Walida range, not just skin food, but the whole range. So this is the perfect time to stock up on your faves, grab a couple of shower bars, those delicious ultra creamy plastic free shower bars that they do. Uh, and maybe some other things in the range. Gosh, I could, the Burns and Bites gel, the Arnica cream. Uh, there are so many things that I use. If you're a bit younger, the Rose face creams are delicious. Uh, and, uh, I love the evening primrose eye, eye cream as well. I mean, yes, I could go on. So Lotox Life is your code, 20% off. And then of course our major sponsor, Oz Climate. Do not wait until you have issues with backburning uh, or nearby bushfires in the late summer when all air purifiers are sold out and you really wish you could get one. Get your Winix air purifier now. They're 10% uh, off with the code LOTOXLIFE. Uh, the little compact four stage is perfect for bedrooms and a really great entry point to see just the difference that it makes, especially if you've got kids with dust mite allergies, mold allergies, if you're suspecting water damage and you can't quite do anything about it or move right now, then air purifiers are really a wonderful insurance policy, as are the dehumidifiers as we crack into the more humid months of the year. So... That's it. Uh, enjoy those sponsor offers. And here's to this conversation on PCOS uh, and the many pearls of wisdom we learned from Leia along the way, reaching far and wide. I would so love it if you shared this with people. There is just so much good stuff in here and I can't wait to hear what you think. Enjoy. Leah, hello. How are you? I'm very well. How are you? I'm great. Uh, we are talking PCOS today. I'm actually not quite sure how we got to the eighth year of the show, <laughs> not doing a show on PCOS. Um, <laughs> thank you. Uh, but we're doing one now and that's what matters. It's come up in a few women's health podcasts, of course, uh, but you know an awful lot about it. And, mm. uh, and I think to start, I'd love to ask you what, uh, why is it so hard to get diagnosed with PCOS in the first place? I mean, it feels like you can go to your doctor for like quite a few wrong, shitty things for a long time before anyone thinks, well, let's test this and let's scan that. And why? Um, I think it's, I mean, with PCOS, because there's such a, a multi-systemic involvement aspect to it and it's the whole person that you know they've got a bit of this and a bit of that and a bit of this and some of their initial symptoms might be insomnia might be acne and might be a little bit of weight gain so they kind of go we'll go on a diet and we'll be fine but it's actually such a metabolic endocrine disorder that everyone just kind of goes oh there's a simple fix for it rather than taking a step back and looking at all of the variables that go with it including things like depression and anxiety um, and body dysmorphia and like all these other aspects. So I think that, you know, we've had a lot of challenge over the years where the diagnostic criteria wasn't adhered to appropriately. So a lot of people were misdiagnosed when they, they had cysts on their ovaries, but they didn't have all the other variables. So there's a wonderful um, professor, Helena Teed, uh, she's based in Victoria, and she has headed an incredible project 
um, looking at the guidelines for PCOS internationally. And so she's collaborated with a number of um, fantastic research groups and clinicians all around the world. And it looks like it'll be something that they'll update on a regular basis, either yearly or every two years. And um, it has really transformed an international understanding around PCOS and what it means and how to diagnose it and um, potential, you know, aspects of what could be included in it. Um, but they're also, you know, regularly looking at the data and trying to establish is this actually substantiated and classifying the data in different ways, you know, looking at it and going, this is interesting, but it's not conclusive or this is definitively conclusive. So really important that we're doing it. But I guess the biggest challenge is, is that people that have had a diagnosis in the last 20 years or have not been diagnosed in the last 20 years, um, some of it has been for, you know, challenges in the information that the clinicians have had or not had. So it's been tricky, but I think we're in a good position now. That's brilliant. And and so can we unpack that criteria, what it's called, what we can even ask about? I mean, there's, there's something known as the Rotterdam criteria, which is pretty much considered the benchmark of classification. And it means that for a woman to be diagnosed with PCOS, it's defined that she has to have at least two of the three criteria. And the three criteria is one, um, which is called oligoanovulation, which is where she's having an absence of periods or delayed periods. So she's not having a regular monthly or even six-weekly cycle. Um, hyperandrogenism, which is essentially where she has too many male hormones in her body, too many androgens, I should say, not male hormones, because we all have them, um, but too much testosterone and the relevant features and symptoms that go with it. And that might be acne, it might be um, hirsutism, which is hair growth in places that we don't want it. Um, and it may be all the mood aspects that go with the elevation of androgens. Um, and the other is polycystic ovaries. And that's the interesting one. Well, they're all interesting, but that's the really interesting one because as technology has developed and our sonography equipment has gotten much more specialised, we've been able to detect smaller and smaller follicles. So that's one of the ones that they keep changing because you can go to one place and get an ultrasound and go to another place and get an ultrasound and they can count your follicle number which is essentially the follicles contain the eggs in the ovaries. And, um, you know, you can have a completely different number, both in measurement and both in quantity. And that's where the contention has been predominantly, both in the literature and in the clinical context. You know, people are having a diagnosis of PCOS when it's just been, you know, a large amount of cysts on their ovaries um, or a large number of follicles, whereas now the criteria keeps changing. So, you know, Rotterdam is more than 12. Um, yeah, but now they're even saying greater than twenty is when you're starting to classify it as PCOS. Right. So if you go and have an ultrasound and they find like three or four cysts in one ovary, that's not a massive alarm bell for PCOS. Not at all. Not at all. Because mm -hmm. the biggest thing to remember is that you know, based on where science is at, and I can argue this one and talk about all the research, but it, it will go down rabbit holes. Um, we're born with all of our, um, our eggs, essentially, and we release them on a monthly basis. And it, in every cycle, a woman is going to have multiple um, multiple follicles being active. So a normal, everyday, healthy woman will have, you know, on an ultrasound, on average, about 10 of them being active, and that's normal. She can have 15, and that's still normal. But when we're getting into the 20 or more than that, and some of the research is even talking about 40 and more, um, because the technology is more advanced, um, that's when we start to go, okay, too many of them are responding. And I mean, if you don't mind me doing a tiny little segue that'll just explain it. No, do um, it. 
we have we have this ability so we've got all of the eggs that we're born with and then we release they say roughly between 20 to 30 per cycle and it used to be that you know we'd all be there and we'd go okay left ovary is ovulating this month which means right ovary is ovulating next month it's actually not true what happens is is that both ovaries release follicles um, and the brain secretes a hormone called fsh and one of those follicles um, will respond faster than all the other ones and the egg within the follicle will mature. And that's the one that you'll ovulate from. And then you'll either conceive a baby or you'll have a period. And all of the other ones will have partial responses to the FSH. But generally, we won't produce enough FSH for more than one of them to be responsive, unless you have twins or triplets or anything like that genetically. And occasionally, some women, you know, will have multiple follicles respond. And that can often happen to women, let's say, in perimenopause. But the bulk of them will stay at this smaller size and the smaller size of them then may or may not have an egg in them. So the follicle may expand, but there may or may not be an egg inside. And then that's what starts happening with women with PCOS. They have all of these follicles starting to develop. Whether or not they have eggs in them is debatable. Often they don't. But then the ovary itself starts to enlarge in size because there's all of these follicles getting bigger on the outside of them. And then, you know, the next cycle, there's more of them. And then there's scar tissue. And then there's all the other stuff. That goes with it and so it's a very different condition because in a normal scenario all of those other follicles that weren't big enough we just lose them and that's a normal it's, it's called atresia you know um oocyte atresia and it's a normal phenomenon it doesn't mean anything harmful it's just we we have some and then we lose some and it's just like waves on an ocean but yeah. when when we're getting older and when we're sort of perimenopausal um that's when it gets very interesting because then the signaling in the ovary starts changing and then we release more and more of them mature and all sorts of things happen, but we might want to talk about that after. <laughs> yeah, as a near 48-year-old, there are all sorts of things all happening. All sorts of things. <laughs> <laughs> lots, lots yeah, happening. Funny. Oh, my gosh, yes. Yeah. yeah. So can we talk about some of the things that play into setting the stage for PCOS, whether that be genetics, um, any kind of lifestyle factors as a child that might be, playing into it or, or life situations uh, like stress or abuse. Are there, is the science kind of telling us anything about the, the different things that might mean that you would be more likely to end up with a PCOS picture? Absolutely. I think if we, if we take a step back and we look at PCOS and we go, okay, everyone has to have these three main criteria or these three main symptom pictures, it's all of the other things that start to produce a really full picture for us that help us understand what we might do that might drive it or what exactly. might have happened in our genetics or the pregnancy of how we were conceived and things. Like there's an incredible body of evidence now that talks about how how you were conceived, the health of your parents at the conception of you and the health of your mum in her pregnancy, the food choices she made, the lifestyle choices she made, whether or not she ate too many carbohydrates, how that creates set points for various endocrine pathways for you, particularly all your metabolic factors like your insulin and your weight set point and um, all of those things, leptin sensitivity, et cetera. And then that predisposes you to being a PCOS person because PCOS being so metabolic it's what was the original genetic information when you were in utero, what was the environment and the sugar level that you were exposed to in utero, and then when you were born, what was it like? What was, if you were breastfed, what was the sugar content of the breast milk? How were solids introduced to you? What were the types of foods that were introduced to you? How did that influence that hypothalamic axis in your brain to create your set point around your weight, which invariably is your set point around your metabolism, 
which then dictates the endocrinology for the rest of your body. Because wow. we know that if a person has, you know, five kilos outside of their healthy weight range, all of their endocrinology behaves differently. Mm-hmm. And that's how conditions like PCOS are created. So sadly or positively, depending on how you look at it, I mean, the positive is it's incredibly empowering because then, you know, every choice you make in your lifestyle determines whether or not you do or don't have this condition. But it does also mean that the choices that were made before you could make choices um, will influence your tendency to it. And I yeah. see that a lot in people, you know, myself included. I think that uh, people, like when they've done evolutionary studies and they've sort of looked at how PCOS has evolved and there are theories that PCOS developed so that people could still conceive in a, a situation of famine. So if you look at, um, you know, humanity and you look at the capacity for us to reproduce and all the, those amazing bigger picture perspectives, if there was a famine and all of us were unable to ovulate when we were too thin, then we would not be able to continue. So genetically, we've evolved that there are some people in our community that are able to evolve even when we're at a lower body weight and we actually ovulate more successfully at a lower body weight to enable the survival of humanity. Um, It doesn't mean I'm I'm pro-disordered any or anything like that, but it does mean that metabolically there's a design to PCOS in a positive lens, but it also means that people that are diagnosed often, not always, but often need to just make sure that they have a healthy body weight. It's probably the biggest piece. Mm, wow. And then, you know, we then live in environments and l- with lifestyles that tend us towards chronic stress, that tends us towards fight or flight, that tends us towards metabolic dysfunction. Um, Cortisol bellies and all Exactly. That. Okay. Yeah. There is a lot going on. A lot, uh, a lot. And as you were speaking, I was thinking of the, the mums of the 70s who, who birthed the X-Gen smoking a little bit here and there, having the odd drink, um, so common. And then we were born into the fast food, you know, renaissance, not renaissance, naissance. Um, I was living in Chicago as a baby and, you know, it was all the Farex and all those porridges and things that were being given to babies all of a sudden. It's it's no wonder that um, that Gen X and onwards uh, is where we're really seeing the proliferation of these conditions. Is that a, it, would you agree with that uh, from a timeline Absolutely. perspective? Mm. Absolutely, I think it's one of those ones where it's like, has this actually always been going on, but we couldn't test for it? Yeah, like we didn't have the technology around ultrasounds, for example, and of course. we dismissed women with hirsutism or something, let's say. Yeah, that'd um, be a part of it. Absolutely, absolutely. But I think the environmental pollutant passes the thing that kills me more than anything else you know like I look at yes this gen x population let's say predominantly and the amount of environmental pollutants that we've been exposed to that have infiltrated the food supply that airborne that you know like all of those other factors you know like we're the generation of plastics basically you know Mm -hmm. like our parents brought us up on plastic so then of course all those plastics have hormonal you know mediating properties to them and they're influencing our hormone cascades so there's a lot to be said for that part too. It's a bit scary. Yeah, it is. And and so how do we not be scared? Uh, because that that's a huge piece of it as well. Because if you live in fear that everything you're doing is hurting you or hurting your chance of having a future baby, I mean, then that's going to create a whole other cascade that we don't want to happen. So as a practitioner, I'm sure you help people navigate this. I mean, I I birthed the low-tox movement and in my DMs when people have learned, let's say from other people now because there's education all over the internet, 
I then get these DMs randomly from new people I've never heard of, never done one of my courses. They're like, okay, I've found mothballs in the hotel. Can you tell me what we can do so that we don't get cancer? And oh God, that's a terrible mental health space to be in. Like, okay, let's let's talk off the ledge as well. So we can move forward empowered, right? Instead of freaked out about everything. Yeah, completely agree. I think it's important to make the choices that we can make and then to not tip over into the place where we're not living and enjoying life. Because mm. ultimately we've got to enjoy this journey. We've got to have we the best experiences that we can. And we can't be, you know, limiting ourselves from experiences. It's, it's just not healthy. But you can certainly make choices about, you know, as Mark Iman always says, what you put on the end of your fork. You can make choices about your cleaning products. You can make choices about things that you can. But if you are that person in the hotel room and there are, you know, mothballs and whatever it is, you're still, let's say, hypothetically in Paris and you're having a great time. So, you know, it's not your day-to-day and it's about making sure that what you do in your home is where you make the most of your decisions and you still just have the balancing act around it. Um, But, you know, being healthy and eating well and making healthy environmental choices is actually the easier cheaper more cost effective way to do everything you know so yeah I think yeah. there's there's a, an ease to it it's when it sort of swings in the direction of fear and um you know really limiting yourself that you're forgetting to live so I think you just got to always find your balance with it mm, for sure and you mentioned eating uh and that can be a confusing subject especially when we have all those different dietary recommendations online and is it low carb is it keto like what kind of label do I have to eat if I have a label like PCOS how can we demystify that and and bring in the individual piece as well yeah of course I think I hope you don't mind me sort of jumping to this part. With PCOS, we've got a a classification that there are four types to it. And this is, you know, 2023 perspective. And I guarantee you by 2025, we'll have another one or another two. You know, at the moment, we believe that the most common form of PCOS is insulin-resistant PCOS. And so that obviously has very specific dietary recommendations. Um, There's also pill-induced PCOS, which is much more, you know, temporary and short-term, and you can re-educate the endocrine system quite relatively easily in about six months if you address the nutrient deficiencies. Then there's inflammatory PCOS, which, you know, definitely leans into the idea of the adrenal exhaustion and the cortisol piece and um, potentially an infective origin. And then there's hidden PCOS, which we're not entirely certain as to what it is. Um, but um, I would say that there's a lot of other hormonal pieces that go with it and other medications and different things like that. So I think it's about looking at it and being clear that when we're considering the concept of the type of PCOS, then we can be specific around the food choices that we should make. So it's simplistic to say that everyone with PCOS should be, you know, keto or paleo and grain-free because that may or may not be appropriate for them. And it certainly may or may not be appropriate for them if they're a high athlete, for example. You know, there's a whole breed of women that have PCOS that are incredibly fit and very athletic and train, you know, 50 hours a week and that sort of stuff. And their type of PCOS is a little bit different and it may not be insulin resistant. So ascertaining the type of PCOS is number one. Um, But with respect to those diets, the thing that I always take a step back with, and I think it's, you know, the privilege for being a clinician for 25 years or whatever it is now, and I take a step back and I look at it and I go, there are trends with diets and things go in and out and research will change. But more importantly than that, the individual's health needs will change based on where they're at, 
what's going on in their lifestyle, whether or not, um, you know, they have children, they want to have children, you know, like all of the other variables of life changes. And it's being flexible with your dietary choices when you're doing that. So I guess the two things are being specific about the type and then being specific about where you're at in your life because they all have their merits. Mm. And, and working with a clinician who's able to make those distinctions and and um, apply with nuance for sure. Um, so I just want to come back to something you said about then the carbohydrate load in pregnancy. Um, and I love these interviews where you go, yeah, the questions can wait. <laughs> <laughs> I've got my special questions. I'm happy to go but... wherever. I'm happy to go wherever. <laughs> because this is a really interesting one for me. I've been pregnant uh, just the one time, definitely a one-hit wonder kind of gal by choice. And um, and so I'm very grateful for that experience. But I felt sick if I didn't eat a ton of carbohydrates. And then so you have this conundrum where eating, because I have PCOS, so you're eating too many carbohydrates in pregnancy and then predisposing your future child to having metabolic issues. But like in that moment, carbohydrates are survival almost to eat something that doesn't make you want to spew. What what's How do we unpack that conundrum? Yeah. Um, I'm going to go off on a little tangent. I hope that's okay. Do it. Do um, it. Um, Okay, so I've got a few theories about pregnancy. So I, I've got two kids myself, and I think that you learn so much when you've been pregnant yourself. Yeah, like you learn mm. about all the ins and outs and the nuances and the subtleties. But and you learn how to make pizza. <laughs> yeah, you, you learn all sorts of amazing things. <laughs> um, one of the most beautiful things that I've learned over the years is the cravings in pregnancy and the food requirements in pregnancy need to have flexibility based on the stage of pregnancy and what often happens for women is that they start the pregnancy with one food picture and then they assume that that's what it is for the whole pregnancy so that's number one so the first thing is in first trimester is that the foods that a woman will choose to consume in first trimester are safe foods so they're all white and yellow they're hardly ever colored the idea of fish or meat or green veggies is generally abhorrent and quite triggering for them. They generally like spice, but they like hot chips, potato chips, <laughs> cheese and crackers, toast, and that's about it, yeah? And they, they choose safe foods that will give them quick glucose release because the rapidity of growth of that child is so significant that they need fast glucose they might crave things like lollies and soft drinks, but usually it, that's not when they want it. At that point, all they want are potatoes and bread and cheese. And I learned this one years and years ago, and I remembered seeing the um, the similarity with some of my mental health patients. And that doesn't mean I think pregnant women are mentally unwell, um, but I used to see the similarity similarity with my mental health patients because it's about the safety of the food. So you might remember in first trimester that it's um, anything that you know smells slightly off or looks slightly off or anything. There's this safety mechanism, and you go, I can't touch it. Yeah, and that's a really clever thing. So heightened. So it's like literally keeping you away from the things that could poison you. Exactly. Mm. Exactly. And white and yellow foods generally can't poison you. Yeah. And that's, you know, like an evolutionary um, perspective as well. So these are the things that women want in first trimester. Yes, they are generally carbohydrate rich, except for the cheese part. You you can usually get like cashews and things like that and do. But what I always tell my pregnant patients is, is, you know, put things together. So like make a pumpkin soup and hide every veggie known to man in it with heaps of spices and you'll be fine. But don't sit down to a bowl of broccoli because you probably won't want to eat it. but as soon as the placenta is independent, which is somewhere between week 10 and week 16, 
um, it starts secreting its own hormones and then your food cravings change and that protective mechanism reduces and then your broadening of food choices kicks in. But some women ignore it and then they get in this groove of, and absolutely not saying this is you, Alex, but um, (laughs) some women get in the groove and they go, I'm pregnant and it's a craving and I'm just going to eat it. Mm. So the challenge with that is then then they start perpetuating the glucose and the sugar cravings and then all they eat are those sorts of things. But really, once the placenta is independent, your breadth of food choices should get broader and your cravings should change and then you can start really improving the nutrition of what you put in your mouth and in your body. Cool. That doesn't always happen. Yeah, I switched to um, spinach. You know those frozen packets of spinach? You're cute. I I know. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's interesting scientifically because I would defrost one of these things with a a nice big blob of butter and just eat it out of the bowl. Years later, finding out that I had a homozygous C677 MTHFR snip Um, And, of course, like any chick in the early 2000s who was pregnant, uh, you know, I was taking a folic acid, not a, not a folinic or, um, or a methylfolate. And so of course my body couldn't assimilate that. And so it headed for the spinach. And I just think that's miraculous. I just love that story because it illustrates for me in this state of heightened senses that you've described as a, from a scientific perspective, how it play out, plays out unbeknownst to us is just amazing for me. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah. It's beautiful. But I think it's, you know, like the PCOS woman at that point, their almost addiction to sugar, if they're that insulin resistant type, the addiction to sugar is quite significant and it increases quite rapidly during the pregnancy. So then they just keep wanting the carbohydrate. And then if you, let's say, take the, you know, the inflammatory PCOS type, because if you know, they're so inflamed all the time and then pregnancy is an inflammatory process. They crave sugar because they're so exhausted. Then if you look at the adrenal type, you know, they're just exhausted and pregnancy is exhausting. Um, It's beautiful, but it's also exhausting. Um, So then you want quick pick-me-ups, which is sugar and carbs. So then it's about really recognising as well that most of the subtypes of PCOS have a sugar craving to them um, for various drivers. So it's, it's yeah, I think, you know, I, I always say this to women, you know, pregnancy is not the time to think that your craving is actually intuitive. It's trying to guide you for what you really need. Necess- you like sometimes your spinach one aside, that one's beautiful, um, you know, but the classic <laughs> I craving. I recognise that it's highly irregular. <laughs> Most people oh, just crave like a sometimes peanut butter ice cream or something crazy, but yeah. No, <laughs> sometimes people do beautiful things, you know, yeah. like that. Um, but, yeah, there's there's just there's a big carbohydrate demand and, I think one of the, the more fascinating times that I find clinically is um, the PCOS woman that's gone through the pregnancy and the weight changes that happen when she's breastfeeding or even if she chooses not to breastfeed. Um, and they're the women that tend to gain a lot of weight from breastfeeding. They may not even gain that much weight during pregnancy, but they gain so much weight post. Um, and that's quite an interesting phenomenon too. Hmm. And so what's yeah. that woman supposed to do? Um, well, there's some, I'm a, I'm a science geek as well, so apologies. Um, but there's an interesting paper that um, has come out looking at the six subtypes of uh, leptin receptor resistance. And so leptin's the hormone that works with ghrelin, which is all around, I've eaten enough, I'm still hungry. You know, like, can I actually regulate what I put in my mouth? And they found that women postpartum, specifically because they're so sleep deprived, because, you know, they say we lose 700 hours in the first year. 
um, of sleep, because they're so sleep deprived, it accelerates that sort of adrenal PCOS type. Um, and then they just gain weight anyway. So they gain weight because they're sleep deprived. Their sugar sensitivity drops off. They're constantly hungry. They're never satiated. They've also got the demand metabolically of producing breast milk. So they're constantly hungry as well. Um, and then they just keep gaining weight because that whole um, mechanism doesn't really work. So they're definitely the people that gain a lot of weight um, breastfeeding. Got it. And um, and one of the other things I wanted to ask you about while we are talking about pregnancy, I guess, is the broader picture of fertility and miscarriage with PCOS. It's... um. It's a tricky one for me because, like you said, I, I never want to have the negative slant. You know, I never want to put that that fear into someone. But sadly, statistically, it's not in their favour. Um, there is definitely a higher chance of miscarriage, but it's it's multifactorial. And I think the thing to be mindful of with PCOS is if you've got it managed, your miscarriage risk is not there and you're just the same as everybody else. But if your, your drivers around your PCOS aren't managed, it does affect the quality of the eggs. Um, so then the chance sadly increases, but it seems to affect it more commonly in the insulin resistant type um, because the eggs mature differently because of the metabolic factors within the body. So then, you know, the the quality of the eggs themselves are changed quite a lot. Mm-hmm. But, um, and so this is where the preconception care is yeah. so critical. Yeah. And identifying if you have tendencies to PCOS, if you have it genetically, you know, like one of those classic things that you sort of always ask people is, you know, do you have skin tags? Do you have blood sugar fluctuations? Do you have hair growth in funny places? What is your cycle doing? And they may have little rumblings of it, which just suggest either environmental or genetic influence. And you can fix that in the preconception window beautifully. So then the egg quality and the egg information and the egg signaling is totally supported. Awesome. So the most important thing from the fertility and miscarriage risk perspectives Mm -hmm. is preconception window and really working hard with someone who knows what they're doing. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Great. Yeah, lots we can do. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And then so are people with PCOS more likely to get hypothyroidism? Is there a link there? There is, sadly. Um, There's a link in two ways. There's a link through iodine. Uh, there's actually a few ways, but I'll just highlight two. Uh, there's a link with iodine because we know that iodine assists in quality ovulation and women that are low in iodine tend to have under-functioning thyroids um, and then they have poor quality ovulation and then if they have um, under-functioning thyroids then they don't ovulate as well and it just keeps going around in circles. But the biggest thing that I always do is I take a step back. You know, I was taught this years ago um, by a teacher, Fran, and she always likened the endocrine system to dominoes. And that's really what it is. As soon as one endocrine system is a bit wobbly or isn't working very well, it sets off a cascade of events and they all just feed into each other. So, you know, if there's PCOS and there's poor ovulation and, you know, mismanaged sugars, then that sadly does influence the thyroid health. Now, I want to ask about uh, uh, different stages of life with PCOS because, There's obviously your first fertility window as you hit puberty as a girl um, and then you're moving into your 20s and 30s, a bit more stable. Maybe there's a baby happening in there somewhere if you choose to. Then we hit the 40s, 50s, very different. Um, What is PCOS doing at these different phases? Like let's say we just leave it to be and we don't try to treat it, we don't change it, like how does it change in the human body over those phases? Mm. 
God, there's so much we could say to that one line. I'll keep it brief. Um, all right, <laughs> you don't have to keep it brief. Me. This is a group of <laughs> we nerds. We might be here all day, though. <laughs> yeah, true, fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> uh, let's say we look at um, puberty. Okay, so if we take the approach that PCOS is a you know multi-systemic metabolic disorder, then you're more likely to have a child that's overweight. You're more likely to have a child that because they're overweight, they go through their first period earlier. You're more likely to have um, a child that destabilizes their blood sugar levels earlier, which sets a cascade of different things. Yeah. So then their food choices are different than their, you know, their metabolic set point is influenced. Their exercise capacity is different. Their emotional well-being is different, both because of the metabolic piece, but also the social stigmas and their well-being and their sense of self and, you know, their predisposition to disordered eating, particularly more bulimia than anorexia in the literature. Um, you know, it goes on and on and on and on and on. Um, I, you know, and sadly, you know, the higher the adipose tissue and the higher the weight that a child carries, the more a sponge they become for environmental toxins, because, you know, fat likes toxins and toxins like fat, um, which basically means then they store a whole heap of stuff in many different places in their body, which then predisposes them to all the other changes that go from there. But, you know, their sec secondary sexual characteristics are often earlier. They're often more traumatic. You know, six-year-olds having periods are not emotionally equipped to handle it. So, you know, everything just flows on from there. Um, and then they've got this set point of, you know, and I'm focusing on the insulin-resistant type for a minute, but they've got this set point around metabolically being less active and being more predisposed to cardiovascular events and complications and things earlier and earlier in life. If we move to through the menstruating years, um, you've got, you know, less regularity around the cycle. You've got, you know, more chance of having acne and skin scarring and all those things, but the emotional well-being becomes more and more complicated. And I think the thing that, you know, part of why I love hormones is because estrogen and progesterone are just so beautiful at maturing the brain. I mean, progesterone in particular, when you really dive into the research at the moment, is around progesterone and its maturation process of the brain and its ability to assist us in laying down information, in developing our schemas, which is our understanding of knowledge and growing our knowledge, in improving the quality of our sleep, in improving our long-term and short-term memory, like all these things. And all of these things are going to be missed out on in those you know, reproductive years, which are going to affect the brains and the cognitive performance and emotional well-being of these individuals if the PCOS isn't managed. And we can see that if we stepped in when she was six or seven and did different things, or we stepped in when she was 12 or 15 or 18, we're completely changing the trajectory of who she is and where she's going. Um, if it continues, I'm, I'm sounding all gloomy and I apologise. Um, no, no, if, please do because it's really important to know what we're dealing with as, in a life massive. cycle. It's huge. It's massive. And, and I guess I highlight it because, you know, we're sort of like three, four generations into it being a really common condition and it's just going to get worse unless we do things. And, you know, the amount of little kids that I'm seeing having really early periods is really scaring me you know it was like one a year and now it's so much more it's 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 huge um but you know as she progresses towards maybe wanting to have a family or at least wanting to have a regular cycle that gets trickier and so she misses out on all those hormones that make her a female that you know help her bone health help her um cognitive function as i said but help her emotional well-being in a way that you know the cycles that a woman goes through whilst sometimes challenging if they're not supported 
are incredibly transformative for her. You know, like they give her the capacity to renew herself in a monthly basis. And when that's protracted and when she's got that, oh, my God, it's been five months and I haven't had a period, I feel so distressed, that means that she's missing out on all the good stuff on a, on a regular basis. And I, I think we have to not underestimate that because then if you like, you go into the sexual health part of it, if she's not having a regular cycle, it's tricky for her to have regular sexual health maturation. You know, so she's not exploring her sexuality the way that she could in a, at a young age and then at an older age. She's not understanding herself. She's not understanding what is and isn't positive for her and how she can have all that regenerative aspects for herself. So it's quite, quite, it's quite concerning, um, but it's quite disabling for her in different ways. Um, from a fertility perspective, that's where I obviously see the bulk of it because that's what I focus on. And once a woman has gone through all of those different phases and then she's in that fertility world, you know, fertility is the thing that women always sit with. It's what I'm designed to do. I should be able to do it. So the biggest challenge for them is that they feel like an absolute failure. You know, apart from the fact that their weight isn't where they want it to be necessarily, either they can't put weight on or they've got too much, um, or the fact that they have no libido or the fact that their cycle isn't doing what it's meant to do. And remember, PCOS women, when they do have a period, it's often a shocker because they haven't had a period for so long. So it's not like oh, all of a sudden they've bled it and there's no symptoms or problems that go with it. But the the sense of failure for women and the sense of that their body's not friends with them almost, I know that sounds weird, but that's incredibly debilitating. Um, well, that doesn't and sound then they weird go down, at all. I'd say yeah. there'd be a fair few people listening going, yeah, yeah. I feel like that or I've yeah, felt like just, that. I feel yeah, so lucky awful. that... I found a naturopath because I'd had recurrent tonsillitis. That was why mm. I went. But what she then was able to help me achieve, I just kind of happened to say, oh, and by the way, my doctor said that I have polycystic ovaries and I haven't had a period for a couple of years. Wow. <laughs> I remember her eyes kind of getting bigger and bigger. Um, but it was kind of because I got off the pill um, and then I had this other test and another um Another doctor said that I might have early onset menopause. Is that something you can help me with as well? <laughs> I remember I was 28. And wow. It was like, wow. okay, she's German. I don't know if you ever came across Christine Schwedhelm when she was here practicing yeah. in Mossman, but yeah. she was just she's lovely. the OG for me, just such an absolute gun of a clinician. I was so lucky that I found her. And she just, in six weeks of herbs and and supplements um, had me humming again. And I was shocked because I had never been to a naturopath before seeing her. So it was really, wow, she really fixed these two huge issues in my life um, with without, in inverted commas, medicine. You know, it's just such a, of course it's medicine. It's giving the body what it needs to heal. That was the original medicine. Um, so it's just such a big journey, I think, for us in healthcare to get to a place where women actually have this care as standard. That's that's the thing that I hope for, for sure. I mean, you've you've been in the game for a really long time. I'm sure that's what you're working for every single day. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm sure you saw the ripple effect of, you know, you getting your cycles back and how that just changed how you felt in yourself incredible and yeah. you know what an amazing simple uncomplicated conception journey 
Um, you know, like, so I just, I want people to know who are having a tricky time of it, that things can change. They really can. Yeah. Um, sometimes it's, you know, like a simple nutrient deficiency, mm -hmm. you know, like I'll have some people come in and then it's like, we just fix their zinc, get their copper down and then they're menstruating. So these are nutrients that are involved in so many other aspects of the body. And then all of a sudden the body goes, no, I don't need to produce all these empty follicles. So the follicles stop, the androgens go down, you know, like, and then all of a sudden they're not diagnosed as PCOS. It's just a zinc deficiency. So, yeah, there's sometimes it's lovely and simple. Yeah, that's it. And mm -hmm. so then we're moving beyond um, being actively producing babies mm -hmm. into the 40s and 50s. What's PCOS mm -hmm. doing in those years unchecked? So... When we look at the research, it's that, so the theory is, is that you have your first menstrual period and that dictates when you're going to have your last menstrual period. And women with PCOS have AMH, which is anti-malarian hormone, which is a reflection of the antral follicle count, which is basically how many follicles you have each cycle and how many you have left. They have higher levels generally um, for a number of reasons. And what happens is, is that you have the woman that's normally cycling and the woman that's PCOS cycling. And they both continue along the way. And then the woman that's normally cycling slowly goes down towards menopause. She slowly starts to drop off um, her ovarian reserve. And then she'll have that one last period. And then that's her transition. Whereas the woman with PCOS keeps going, 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 going and crashes. So she actually has quite a different experience of it, which is quite illuminating and quite interesting. So the I'll call it normocyclic or the normally cycling female. Her perimenopausal transition is a a fluctuation over a period of time but it has a downward trajectory whereas the PCOS is a crash and the crash can be incredibly full-on for some women if it's not managed so it can be like a really significant depressive period because they all of a sudden go from all these really really high hormones and remember that the high androgens make us feel like we can do everything mm -hmm. so androgens make us feel like we can and lift heavy weights and we can run the marathon and we can survive on no sleep and we've got a sex drive hopefully from it and we've just got energy and we're like hurrah you know like cheering and then when the androgens crash which they invariably do they then go what I, I don't know who I am and the I don't know who I am is quite sudden for a lot of women so it's quite tricky but equally you can have the reproductive changes so the standard in inverted commas is you know the frequency of your periods changing and the heaviness going up and down and changing and surges of estrogen and down and all that but when they're not cycling or hopefully they are at that point but let's say they're not cycling then they're just having massive gaps and then really flooding periods you know like flooding through the sheets and stuff often um, and then they're having major weight changes and just steadily increasing and increasing typically so that typically is what happens. So there's there's sort of some really key things that change, but equally as well, there's the um, the autoimmune drivers. So the autoimmune piece is that through perimenopause, there's a tendency for things like that to switch on because anything that has a hormonal requirement or uses hormones to modulate, which includes our immune system, progesterone is the main one there. Um, things that have been hidden or things that you've got genetics for can come up. So it's quite common for things to come up for the woman with PCOS as well. Yeah, wow. So could we unpack that phase then from a treatment perspective now that we've looked at the left unchecked perspective, which yeah, of course. to all of us listening now sounds horrifying. <laughs> um, <laughs> thanks for painting such a bleak Sorry. picture of this impending crash. Um, what are some of the things that we can do? Because 
I feel like we can sometimes get a bit expensive test happy in this phase and not necessarily everybody has that budget to do a Dutch test every six months to keep an eye on things or um, what are the lifestyle impacts we can have that help us modulate it best and how do you then feel, B question, so take it after, totally fine, about hormone use for this phase for the PCOS uh, patient? Yeah, for sure. Um, I'm going to answer it in a few different ways. I hope that's okay. Totally when fine. I think of perimenopause and menopause, I think of it like gears on a car. So I think that, you know, when we go into the first gear, we're losing a lot of progesterone because we're not ovulating as much um, and we're not producing as much. Then we sort of start to lose testosterone. Then we start to lose estrogen and then we start to finish cycling. So because we've got that sort of gear shifting trajectory and how it all goes, there's a predictability around treatments to support each of the individual phases. So I love tests, but like you, I kind of always look at it and go, I'm not a researcher when I'm sitting in a clinical seat, you know, does it change my treatment? And it does the cost warrant it. And the thing to remember is with the tests is when you're perimenopausal, you can test one month, two months, three months, four months, and you'll get four distinctly different hormone pictures because of the changeability of the time period. So it's important not to attach too much meaning to one individual test, but equally people don't have the time or the money or the inclination to test it four times. So just take it with a grain of salt. So if you look at it, I sort of take it with patients and I kind of go, okay, so these are the signs that progesterone is deficient. So the first thing that tends to go is you might get night sweats. um, You'll start not sleeping as deeply. Your anxiety will go up. um, You'll start feeling like you're just a bit more tired um, and you'll start feeling like your body's feeling a little bit more agey. But generally, everything's starting to feel like stress feels a bit harder. Um, you might feel a little bit more like your immune system's not as great. So at that phase, you really need to make sure that you sleep, that you do whatever it is that you need to do to help you to sleep. So if it's that you take some herbs or if it's that you um, make sure that you exercise enough during the day for that physical release so that at nighttime you can wind down, if it's that you need to implement a meditation breathing exercise before bed, is it that you need to look at the temperature regulation in your room so that you are cold enough to go into a sleep and do you need to look at how you eat food during the day do you need a little bit more carbohydrates at the end of the day so that you can sleep more deeply through the night those sorts of things because sleep is probably the biggest variable at the beginning because everything is starting to change when you start dropping off your testosterone you start losing muscle mass you start feeling like you're getting an abdominal belly your libido starts tanking you start feeling like you have lower energy so the things that you need to be doing at that point are you need to be exercising we know that we lose roughly 2.5% of our muscle mass on a yearly basis around that menopausal transition. It's usually 1% and then it starts speeding up, unfortunately. So you need to maintain muscle to be metabolically active, to be able to sustain some testosterone. And also remember that whilst the ovarian production of these hormones is reducing, we are then starting to rely on what's known as secondary hormone synthesis. So hormone synthesis from Uh, cortisol synthesis which we do do and we can I guess start to change how the hormones start to get manufactured in different ways so important to exercise important to have lots of sex on your own with other people that's not what's relevant it's about orgasm it's about having the circulation from it it's about enabling the receptors and the blood flow to go all around your body it's about feeling like all of that is still alive and still moving 
when estrogen starts to decline, women start to get dry vaginas. They start to feel like the collagen in their skin is dropping. They start to feel more aged. They start losing pigment in their hair or the graying of their hair increases um, with the testosterone. They can start losing hair as well. That's separate. Um, but they start feeling like everything feels softer, feels drier, feels floppier, for want of a better word but also the brain power starts changing. So they start thinking differently. They start forgetting things. They start not being able to process things at the speed that they're used to, so they can get quite frustrated from it. Um, this is where the depressive sort of things can start to kick in as well. But that's where when the estrogen is changing, you really need to be looking at the food choices. You need to be making sure that you are having phytoestrogens, that you're using other things to build estrogen in a kind way, which is keep your stress levels as low as you can, manage your stress levels as best as you can, because you are going to use your stress hormones too much. You're not going to be able to produce any estrogen because we literally go from producing one form of estrogen to another form of estrogen after menopause. Um, so that's, you know, it relies on us having the lowest stress possible so that we can actually help that synthesis. Mm -hmm. Um and then the next thing that you asked me about was, do I believe in hormones? Was that that one? Do, do you use them? Like, do is I it use them case by case? Yeah. Everything's case by case. Um, so everything is where the person's at. My ideal scenario is that I get a sense of what your hormones are doing when you are cycling with PCOS or without. Um, I kind of want to know what healthy is for you. So some people have just a naturally higher level of progesterone or a naturally higher level of estrogen. So I get a sense of what good looks like mm. um, or best can I, looks can like. Can I ask there um, in terms of testing, uh, if someone just has a regular GP visit and blood tests um, as their option, um, how can, you know, day of the month, best to test, all like the particularities to get a really good picture? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So with your hormones, it's about testing the ones that are about before you ovulate and after you ovulate. So mm -hmm. day one is your first day of your full period. Day two or day three is when you're meant to be at your your, your lowest level, your baseline level. Um, so we can get a clear reading before you start that ovulation cascade. Yeah. So you want to get your FSH, your LH, your estrogen, your prolactin, um, you want to get all of your androgens done on that day. So your free androgen index, your testosterone, your SHBG, your AMH is useful as well, just to fulfill the picture. Um, and then there are other ones that I sometimes add for people depending. Um, and then seven days after you ovulate is when you want to have a look at your progesterone. And then that gives you an idea of the quality of your ovulation and how much progesterone you're producing. And bear in mind that if you have, you know, a 30-day cycle, a 26-day cycle or a 42-day cycle, it's always seven days after ovulation, which then means seven days later is when you'll probably have your period. Um, and ovulation is what varies. Mm. Yeah. Okay. And so um, from that, uh, what, what I want to ask you so many things, Leah, my goodness. No, that's okay. From so that to the hormone prescription. Yeah, there? I think yeah. so. I think that'd be yeah. a really good place to go from there because you get your results yeah. and then when do you decide whether you use the hormones or not? My main rule of thumb is quality of life. Yeah. So these are normal transitions that we all go through, but quality of life. And when your quality of life is being affected, you're, you know, the first thing that women often say to me is, you know, that they're so irritable and they're screaming at their children and why the hell has that happened? And they don't understand it. Yeah. That's when we need to do something. And 
getting a sense of what your hormones are like when you're normally cycling will get an idea of what your body likes because then when it changes, we get an idea of how far away you are from something. You know, a blood level of a hormone is useful, but it's not diagnostic necessarily because it's only reflecting a small percentage of what's actually going on in your body. You can do saliva and you can also do dried urine, which is the Dutch test you're referring to. I really like the dried urine test, but it's not 100% accurate either. Nothing is. Um, and it's about gauging where the person's at and what they need. And the first thing that I'll always do, so let's say I meet someone and with or without PCOS and they come and they're perimenopausal, I'm not going to just jump in with hormones. I'm going to start with let's tidy up your nutrient pathways. Let's give you some herbs so that we can help your body to cycle for as long as it can because the number one goal is you want to have periods for as long as you can because that's the mm. healthiest scenario because that's your hormones that protects your bones, protects your brain, protects your heart, um, improves your longevity, You know, supports your autophagy, like does all the good anti-aging things. You want your hormones. And if I can do that by giving you some zinc and some whatever, false unicorn root, then fantastic. Yeah. But there comes a point when the body goes, actually, I don't have enough here to do this. And that's when I am a big advocate of hormones, but they're the bioidentical type. Um, and I'll only prescribe the bioidenticals when I have a clear reading on where they're at, but predominantly what how they metabolize those hormones. So that's when I'll do a Dutch because I want to see what their metabolism of estrogen, for example, is so that I know what my safety parameters are and then I can work out what hormones are good and what aren't. Because some women, miraculously, you know, like I'll do a test on them and I'll be like, um, you only need DHEA or you only need pregnenolone or you only need progesterone or you only need estrogen. And we'll work out what it is exactly and then we'll test maybe yearly so that we're safe. But there has to be enough initial information remedying of the pathways and assessment of what they need before I'll give it. Mm. Um, but if and is of, that you know, because the, of risk? Is that because well, of risk? Yeah. Well, you never want to give hormones to someone that doesn't need it. And you never want to give hormones to someone where the body doesn't know how to metabolize it or has glitches in the metabolism because that's when things get risky. And so some of your listeners, probably most, um, are aware of the Nurses Health Study. And that was, you know, the biggest women's health study where they looked at the use of HRT. And these were synthetic forms of HRT. And they looked at the use of HRT in women around the menopausal transition. And it was phenomenal because of the sheer number of women that were included in the study. And so it completely revolutionized medicine because finally you had this data set that was just mind blowing. Um, the problem was is that they had all these women of varying ages and they also had women that were prescribed HRT that were like 70, you know, like 20 years after menopause. So the results were entirely skewed, but they stopped the study really early and stopped the treatments because some women were dying of heart attacks and were having cancers and all this sort of stuff developed. So then everyone went into a panic and went, HRT is all wrong. And then they went and reviewed the data and they realized, hang on a tick, we've got all these people that shouldn't be there. They removed all those outliers and then they started getting into the data deeper and deeper and deeper. And they did the third review of it recently and they realised that the biggest risk factor for people to develop predominantly the cancers but also the cardiovascular events was when women were given HRT that weren't combined but predominantly when it was the progestins, the synthetic form of progesterone in isolation. So these are not studies that are looking at bioidentical. So we're looking at synthetic molecules that resemble what they should be but they're not versus molecules that are identical to what the body would naturally produce so you're dealing with completely different biochemical pathways of safety yeah it's but, almost like administering endocrine disruptive chemicals exactly 
Exactly. And and then you can go down that rabbit hole and Mm. know that half of the synthetic ones have endocrine disrupting chemicals in them. Yeah. How they're made. So yeah. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. 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 It's 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 interesting. It's really Mm. interesting. Very. I mean, for me, it's quality of life, you know, like I look at it and I go, look, I'm 45 and I'm not going to, like based on research, you know, you and I, we're going to live to wear 120. I don't want to live till I'm 120 without hormones. So I look at it and I go, I'm happy to take bioidenticals if it's safe. I tick all the boxes and I use it as a way to contribute more to humanity. You know what I mean? Like I'm not using it for negative reasons. Not that there's that many, but some people use it in ways that are, are just risky. Yeah. Mm. And without um, enough data, you yeah. could then be setting off a chain of other negative implications that you didn't mean to, I'd imagine. And so how do you know when, like, let's just say we do go on bioidentical hormones and we've done our testing to know which ones we needed and how much to take and then we're monitoring that with our clinician. Does one eventually taper them off? Like, or do you just stay on them for life? Like, what's that situation? Choice. It's a mm-hmm. choice. Okay. So so if I look at the women that I'm working with, let's say that are on bioidenticals um, or body identicals is the preferred term now, sorry, um, you know, they're generally in their 40s. Some of them are in their 50s. They don't feel like they want to stop working. They don't feel like they want to stop exercising. They want to live a rich and full life. We've also got to remember that the bulk of the women in their 40s at the moment all have young kids because everyone's had kids later. So they want to be younger. They want to be more active. They're not really ready to wind down and retire and, you know, do all that. Um, You know, like the average woman nowadays that has a graduating child at high school, you know, is in her 50s. So it's a very different 50-year-old to what our parents' generation were. So they're wanting to be living longer and doing more. And, you know, there's uh, Peter Atia, who's an incredible doctor on anti-aging. Like he always looks at it and goes, you know, what are your checkpoints of what you want to be able to achieve at each, age, at each age, you know, and we all want to be able to lift our luggage onto the conveyor belt still at yes, 60, I do. At 70, at 80. <laughs> yes, you know I what do. I mean? Like th- these yeah. are hallmarks of things that we want and hormones are part of the equation of how we can achieve that. So we still need them. We still need to be looking at them, provided it's safe, provided we're doing all the right things, provided that we acknowledge that our longevity has changed a lot, you know, like two generations ago, our longevity was 65, maybe 70. So in two generations, we've gone 50, 60 years. So that has to change how we do everything. And if we're still having menopause at the same age, which on average is 51, and we're going through perimenopause up to 12 years before, which means we're lowering our hormones 12 years before 51, so from 38, 39, we need hormones. It's a very different world now. So I, as long as I feel safe about it, I'm saying yes. We can talk in five years. I don't know. We'll, we'll have to see where we're at then. We can only do the best with what we know now. That's that's something we know for sure. Yeah. And so to recap yeah. that whole section, yeah, um, <laughs> massive. <laughs> that was a pretty big, that was a pretty big tangent. Uh, yeah. One of one of the biggest in the history of the show, Leah. So sorry, big sorry. gold prize to you and a trophy. Sorry. No, no, it's good. Um, <laughs> So we would ideally be checking in with a Dutch test to know the metabolic pathways to know what would be the safest of what we would be selecting and we would ideally do that annually. Um, But then Not necessarily, not necessarily. So, I mean, so the Dutch test, what we're looking at is there are three types of estrogens and we can Mm. look at the conversion and the metabolism of those estrogens. We can also then look at the metabolism of 
because when you get into the sterogenesis and how hormones are made, they start from pregnenolone and then DHEA, and then they go down various pathways to manufacture the big guys, you know, testosterone, yeah, yeah. estrogen, and progesterone, whatever. Um, all of those pathways can go glitchy. And I'm hoping that all of these tests, as science evolves, they're adding different metabolites and they're adding different steps in the equations, which they will. And so we're going to understand things very, very differently. But at the moment, before I go anywhere near anything, including things like DHA and pregnenolone, because they can be converted into estrogen, I have to know how she metabolizes estrogen. Because if she's metabolizing estrogen in a harmful way, her cancer risk from an estrogenic cancer is enormous. Mm. And it's too risky. It's too mm -hmm. risky. So it's a, there's definitely um, a skill set that's required in the understanding of this and a skill set in the interpretation of this information. Um, but a yearly basis, you know, the scientist in me goes, please do it. Mm, <laughs> the, yeah. the human in me that has a mortgage goes, I get why you may not want an $800 test all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's $500 at the end of it. But um, mm. I get that, yeah. So you, you've just got to feel comfortable with it. And with hormones, I think it's about giving hormones but staying on the lowest dose that gives you the outcome that you want. Mm -hmm. You know, like if a woman doesn't have enough estrogen as she's gone through menopause, um, you know, her the risk of osteoporosis is enormous. And if she's living to 120 and having a hip replacement, at, like a dual hip replacement at, you know, 55, we don't know what a 55-year-old does. Does she then get another dual replacement at 65, 75, 85? We don't know yet, mm. you know. So this is different territory. So protect yeah. your bones, protect your heart, protect your muscles, protect, protect what you've got. Protect what you've got. Good message. And so can I ask then <laughs> on the Dutch um, test, do we, can it change how we metabolize, how we yes. metabolize estrogen over time? Yes, yes, yes. Thus, and that's the beauty of it. That's yeah, the beauty okay. of what we do, you know. So you can go and send a patient for, you know, a nutrigenomic analysis and look at her genetics around estrogen metabolism and, you know, uh, methylation cofactors and all that sort of stuff. And you can go, look, this is what you've been born with. But why don't we do these changes and then we can make this change for you? Um, epigenetics is a wormhole, so I might just leave it at that. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> no, it was, um, it was more to just clarify um, that if you did have the budget, don't leave it. Do it annually. Check how you're metabolizing it. Yeah. Definitely. Mm. But, you know, like the simple basics of you eating spinach, mm. that's one of the best things you can do to clear up your estrogen metabolism. Mm-hmm. So it's back, back it's, on the frozen packets of spinach with on, butter. Maybe we'll do yeah. fresh this round. But you know, <laughs> <laughs> the simple things that we do make yeah. so much difference. And that's where it's really empowering. And then if someone chooses to adhere to dietary and lifestyle choices that support healthy estrogen metabolism, then she might not need a Dutch on a yearly basis because you've had one and you're like, you're all good now and you know how to maintain it. Mm, so good. So, yeah. so I have a last question and that yeah. is around the exercise piece because this matters yeah. to every age of PCOS patient, person, I should say. Let's not label you as, a, you know, being dysfunctional in that patient kind of conjuring. I don't think that's uh, healthy to the cause. Now, something I have noticed, or well, I've just been coming through the SIRS journey, so that was definitely not fun. Um, but something I have noticed across my entire lifetime is for me to get into shape, like really feel metabolically fantastic, 
I will plateau, 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 be doing like two, three hours of lots of fantastic different bits of activity, you know, low impact, a bit of high impact, a bit of weights, all the things. Um, And then boom, something will click, but it will take a long time to get there and then everything will be working perfectly. Um, Is that every PCOS person's tendency? Is that a pretty common thing? Yeah. Yeah, it is because they have, uh, it, it comes back to that hypothalamic set point around metabolism. And so it comes back to the idea that that set point of where their body is really, really fueled and really thriving. Um, it's just about working out what that looks like for you. And what I find fascinating with PCOS women is some women, it's like what you describe, you know, and they do a bit of hit and they do a bit of weights and boxing and whatever. And some women, it's actually that they do the four or five hour bushwalk. And it's because they're more of an adrenal PCOS that they need to get their adrenals more supported and their cortisol down and the nature bathing and the duration of exercise. It's what actually gets their metabolic set point right rather than the intensity. And it really comes down to the adrenal um, aspect versus the non and also the inflammatory aspect. So like the inflammatory PCOS women um, hit and, you know, F45 and like really full on stuff is a shocker for them too. So it's working out the combination for yourself and then the duration. And then when you find that sweet spot, you maintain it. And what's also beautiful is let's say you're the adrenal woman, adrenal PCOS woman, and you do the like five hour walk on the weekend. And then you do like some ocean swimming and a nice beach walk on the Sunday. Then you can maybe maintain that metabolic set point with 20 minutes of exercise on the other five days. You don't actually have to do the five hours every day, but you've given your body nine hours, let's say on the weekend. And that's what it needs. So it's it's just working out your formula. Yeah, love that. Leah, what an enlightening, enlightening look at PCOS for all it's ages different. and stages. <laughs> it is different, but uh, I think you've given us a lot to work with if um, one might have that diagnosis or indeed if one might be looking into it and thinking, yeah, I have had that little bit of anxiety or that little bit of weight gain or that, you know, niggles and really haven't seen the link or the, the full picture, uh, might be time to, to look into that with someone who knows what they're doing. Thank you so much for having me. And that is today's show. Thank you so much for tuning in. A reminder, we have so many fantastic shows in our archives these days. If this particular topic was helpful to you, head over to lowtoxlife.com forward slash podcast and click on the podcast directory, which gives you food, body, home, mind, and environmental health topics segmented so you can see all the shows that we've done in all of those areas and head straight to what you want. A reminder, we also have 10 fabulous e-courses that I've written with various doctors, naturopaths, health professionals, and experts over the years to support you on your low-tox journey, whether it's making daily swaps, getting ready to make babies, looking after your inflammation, you can hit the courses tab on lowtoxlife.com to explore those. And lastly, I would love to meet you on socials. Go and head over to at lowtoxlife on Instagram or find us on Facebook. It's always such a pleasure to chat and see how you guys are going when you share favorite shows and share them with your friends. I absolutely love that. A little reminder, of course, that all of our shows are not intended as medical advice. They are intended to open the minds and hearts of people and maybe help you explore something you hadn't considered yet, but please always check in with your health professional. And one last little request, 
If you have time to leave us a review wherever you listen to this podcast, that would just mean the world to me because it helps us get out there and have other people have confidence that that thing they're considering pressing play on is absolutely worth it. I'll catch you for the next show you tune into. Thanks for joining me again. This is Alex Stewart, founder of Lotox Life.